Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24, and while you're turning there, I will make a special note. In the confession, it does say that not all passages of Scripture are equally clear, Uh, and we have uh, effectively this Sunday left the clear and embarked into two chapters of exceedingly complex uh, and um, unusually challenging And I don't mean that in the sense of hurting your feelings sort of challenging. I mean it in the sense of clarity. These two chapters are really difficult. Uh, I think, uh, well, Lord willing, the sermon should be clear today. I think the first half of this chapter is, I think, pretty good. The second half of this chapter is hard. So just being completely upfront about where we're headed, um, this is tough. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in winter. We're on a Sabbath. 
For then there will be great tribulation, such as, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so that if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Yeah, we should pray. And Lord, we do thank you for your word, and I do thank you for hard passages as they uh, teach us a bit of humility, uh, not to be quite so cocky that we're so smart we can solve everything. We do pray that your spirit would be pleased to move, even as we talked about in Sunday school today. We cannot understand the Bible without the spirit working. And so we pray that he would be pleased to work for Christ's sake. Amen. Simple question, complex answer, my favorite kind. What is maturity? What does it mean to be mature? And there's a whole bunch of different answers that we could get on this. I think perhaps the one that's appropriate to think about today is that in some sense, maturity is learning that the dreams of childhood would actually be a terrible, terrible curse. Like, well, that sounds terrible. I mean, there's a truth to it though, right? All of the dreams of childhood, not all of them, but many of the dreams of childhood, the things that we kind of like long for, the imagined superpowers, the, the, the kind of grand, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do this, actually turn out to be a curse, right? I remember the first time I actually engaged this thought, it was in a school, I don't even remember which school, but we read that horrible, emotionally traumatizing book, Tuck Everlasting. Some of you have read that, I'm sure. It's the story of a family who have accidentally, I can't remember this part, I think they drunk from the fountain of youth, but they've lost the ability to die. And so they, they go through this world, building relationships, and falling in love, and getting to know people, and, and building friendships, and then watching everyone die around them. It's horrible, and you think, wow, you know, eternal life in this place, maybe not all it would crack up to be. Maybe eternal life in the the other world is better. Or that other dream that I guess so many of us have probably toyed with, the idea of winning the lottery, like, ooh, I'd love to win the lottery. How sweet would that be? Until you actually go and read what happens to lottery, lottery winners. That's hard to say. 
70% of them are dead broke after seven years. And the bigger the prize, they have a mysterious kind of way of just turning up dead. Life expectancy shortens tremendously, namely from gunfire and poison. I'm not making that up. I know there was a movie that came out a long time ago now, I guess, but the, the main character had the ability to listen to other people's thoughts and be able to determine what they want. And it was this kind of, you know, charming movie that uh, everybody's excited about of, oh, he figures out how to manipulate people and, you know, make them happy. And so you think about, like, if you actually knew what people thought, I mean, you know the darkness of your own head. Can you imagine encountering that darkness everywhere constantly from everybody? Do you know the dark thoughts that you think about the people that make you angry? Can you imagine being able to hear other people think that about you? Like you, you couldn't handle it, right? You'd have to go live by yourself somewhere. You couldn't, you know, so many of the things that we want. The, the big one here and the one that's going to matter to us today is the ability to see the future. Many of us at some point in our lives have thought, well, you know, it'd be great if I could just see the future. And you know, that idea, it really is not a bad idea if your life is only good and easy. But the reality is, many of you are cowards like I am. And if we had the ability to see how difficult life would be, well, we wouldn't be able to deal with it. it. It honestly would probably drive us insane. I mean, think about the, the kind of moments in your life that are the most difficult. I've got three or four. If I had known how hard it would be walking into it, would I have been able to do that? Would I have, would I have been able to still say, yes, I want to do this thing, right? Realistically, many of us, would, we wouldn't. It's important that we kind of have this framing any conversation about prophecy in any conversation the Bible has in terms of dealing with the future because we need to understand that the whole thing is the Lord being merciful to set general expectations but not specifics. To give you an idea that it's going to be hard or good or bad or whatever else it is, but not give us so specific of answers that it kind of fractures our psyche. Because it's intriguing how frequently the Bible does talk about the future. It prophesies the future a lot. But I do find it tremendous how the Lord is so merciful that while he does speak about that with more frequency than many topics, it's often with less clarity so that we don't have that kind of seeing the future moment to make us so miserable that we couldn't cope. In fact, actually, and this is really important, whenever the Bible speaks about the future, it is almost always more concerned with our response than it is with the details. 
It's almost always more concerned with what we're supposed to do with that information than it is actually concerned about how clear the information is. That is going to be foundational to understanding Matthew chapter 24 and 25 as it deals uh, a great deal with speaking about the future. Now, some of it is future to the listener, but past to us. And some of it is future to the listener and future to us. Meaning, uh, some of the stuff was fulfilled in 70 AD. In fact, a lot of it was. It was prophecy for them, but we've already seen it come true. But interestingly, again, the text seems to be far less kind of preoccupied with helping us get an exact portrait of what would happen then or what would happen at the, the last day and is far more concerned with what we do with it, right? Example, this is not a history textbook. You can go find a history textbook and read about 70 AD and what happened in Jerusalem, You can get a a history textbook and read about what happened 180 years prior to this being written, roughly uh, dealing with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. You, You can read all of the history of it, and it will read nothing like this, because this is less concerned with the details and more concerned with what you do with them, which is going to be extremely important. Now, the whole thing starts... With a conversation, Jesus is leaving the temple. He's been teaching there for several days, and as he's going away, the disciples kind of have what you can kind of is probably understand is, is a kind of a moment of nostalgia, right? They see the temple, the complex. It's impressive. It's large. It's beautiful. It's kind of just you know profound. Would have been significant in the, in the skyline. It's just significant. It's lovely. And they can, you can kind of imagine them just nudging Jesus and say, look how lovely, it's so beautiful. And Jesus gives them an answer in verse 2 that, killjoy, not what they're expecting, right? Hey, you see these, you see the temple complex, right? Oh yeah, by the way, it's going to be destroyed entirely. Like, done, gone. The disciples have a moment of panic, and I think there's a little bit of comfort here that even the disciples who've spent so much time with Jesus and who've spent so much time learning about the future with Jesus, they don't even understand. And you get to see because even in their follow-up question in verse 3, they are confused. He goes out to the Mount of Olives and begins what we have here is the Olivet Discourse. And the disciples come to him privately. This is no scribes, no Pharisees, uh, not even the larger crowds. This is a small group. Jesus is teaching them and they ask him a question. It's really a series of questions and they're all about different things. Tell us when these things will be, the temple will be destroyed. Tell us about... What will be the sign of your coming? And tell us about the end of the age. Interestingly, three totally separate things, but as oftentimes we like to do, smushed all into one question that they are really showing. They don't, they don't actually get it. They think that the temple is going to be torn down at the last day when Jesus comes back. And it's just all blurry in their minds. And I find great comfort in that, that they too struggle to understand what the future looks like. And Jesus gives them a response that I don't think they were entirely expecting. He goes on a very lengthy discussion about um, the temple. He goes on a lengthy discussion about the future. 
And the passage that we're going to look at today, and specifically the aim of this sermon, is uh, dealing with what responses Jesus is calling for from his people. All right, so verse 3, they ask the question. Verse 4 through 8, Jesus gives them an answer. See that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name. They're going to say, I'm the Christ. They will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end's not yet. Nation will rise against nation, king against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of this is just the beginning. Wow, that's a lot. Well, part of it is, yes, but Jesus is intriguingly giving them a, a kind of first response to dealing with any sort of future conversation. And first response is, do not be led astray just because things look bad. Right? Don't be led astray just because things look bad. And th- this is because he, he knows human nature. And human nature is prone to seeing something really terrible and thinking it's the end of the world. I mean, for me, I remember most significant in my brain, interestingly, not 9-11. That was a big deal. But for me, it was the Boxing Day Rebellion. I mean, not Boxing Day Rebellion, the Boxing Day Tsunami. I said the wrong word, but the right day. Right? The Boxing Day Tsunami, for those who remember, that was the giant tsunami in Indonesia where a quarter of a million people died in the space of just a moment, a couple of hours. Uh, a tsunami that was unexpected, uh, unprepared for, and hit basically everything from East Africa all the way out to Australia, all the way through the islands, and just obliterated people. Uh, islands functionally disappeared. It just took them out into the sea. One of the greatest, size-wise, natural disasters we've ever witnessed, certainly in kind of the modern recorded world. And immediately following that, you got to have all of these kind of discussions and your TV theologians and your, you know, Bible channel pundits popping up and saying, well, what is this a sign that the end of the world is here? Right? Oh, there's more earthquakes. And I remember reading articles that were documenting how earthquakes had become, you know, bigger deals and tsunamis were killing more people. And none of them ever mentioned the fact that just population density was increasing, so there's more people to die. Like, of course, every natural disaster is going to always be more fatal because there's more people to die. Why is it that every hurricane gets more expensive? We have more buildings to destroy. It's kind of common to man to look at bad things and to see them as omens of the end. Look, it's the, the end of time. It's the destruction coming. And Jesus says, woo, calm it. Cool it. Right? Don't be surprised. Verse 6, you're going to hear wars are going to happen. And in fact, actually, there's going to be wars happening that you don't even know about. You just hear the rumors of them. It is, it's just the reality of life. This is what it means to live in a fallen and cursed war, world, that there will be war constantly. I mean, it's one of the most depressing things if you actually go and, and read how many wars there have been in the last hundred years. I mean, most of us being Americans would only know about one or two that we would call like conflicts kind of things. World wars, okay, fair enough. And forget that like the planet has been at war for the last hundred years. There's always a war, at least one somewhere happening all of the time. 
There's literally never been a day of my life where somebody has not been at war on the planet. We just happen to be so American-centric, protected by two oceans, and ignorant of what happens in the rest of the world that we don't notice. Their seven nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. None of this is to be a surprise. There will be famines. I understand that food shortages are a serious thing. I get that. I tend to not like not eating for lengthy periods of time. I get it. But it's interesting that Jesus is saying, look, this is, it's fine. This is normal. This is part of what life is like in a cursed and fallen world. And you don't need to panic. Earthquakes in various places. Interestingly, remember this time in which this is being written is one of the most significant historically for having earthquakes. Because the, if you know, the Mediterranean is right on a series of fault lines that have tended to be very active during this period. We had lots of terrible earthquakes and lots of terrible volcano explosions connected to this. And you have Pompeii and things like that, like really awful things that devastated the landscape, changed the entire known world. Jesus is saying, look, don't freak out. That is to be expected. In fact, actually, you get one step further than that in verse 4, is that Jesus is saying that, look, people are going to use these um, products of sin and products of the fall and products of the curse. People are going to try to use them to actively lead you astray. And you think, well, surely. I mean, who would do that? And I would just simply say, have you watched the news in the last two years? Right? This is how the American media makes its money. Right? They make their money by being sensational, and the easiest thing to sensationalize is fear. To make you afraid of something, even if it's not even in this nation, to, to, to build that kind of trauma in your heart so that you're like, ah, I'm afraid of this thing. Now, you, when they've done it at their best, you never say it. It just produces this kind of deep-seated angst and, and anxiety and unrest in your soul. And all it is, friends is listening to people that are trying to use the byproducts of the fall, the byproducts of God's curse, to make you afraid. Now, again, our political climate makes illustrations of this too easy. Currently, right, you have the far right, which is currently fomenting fear connected to your freedoms, fomenting fear connected to your liberties, fomenting fears connected to the failings of the government and the distrust of our politicians. You have the far left fomenting fears of really the same thing, actually, now that you think about it. 
it's the same thing. I mean, they didn't really even change the narrative, did they? It's the same thing, that the, the liberties are going to be taken away, that your freedom, that your ability to abort your child or whatever else it is, that'll be taken away. It's the same narrative. And I find it intriguing how many Christians are led astray. Instead of living under Christ who has said, do not fear, I will be with you. Even to the end of the age, we have a church that is caved. Letting fear and anxiety dominate our lives. And friends, if you think I'm actually talking about a fear of a virus, that is the least of our concerns. Because that's the obvious one. That's the one that everybody, they spend their energy on and don't realize they've already given in and believed the 17 other things to be afraid of. The thing that also amazes me on this one is that they're led astray by uh, just because things look bad. I, I love, too, how this one just kind of exposes our American narcissism. <laughs> Again, think, being kind, I mean, think about how many people have said in the last 30 years or the last 20 years or the last 10 years or the last five years, it's gotten so bad Jesus has to come back. Friends, go to Iran. I'm fairly certain they've had worse times than they're having right now. Right? Go to other parts of the world, read the BBC, read somebody else's news and realize that, yeah, we've had an unusually good spell of it here. And yeah, fair enough, the last handful of years have been perhaps more difficult than some, but by the world's standards, we have the easiest life on planet Earth. Wars and earthquakes and famines and martyrdom and all of these things have happened all over the world every day of my life. I just haven't been aware of them. And I'm thankful to the Lord of that, honestly. I mean, certainly it's, it's not a, a Christian example, but many of you remember my car, my old car. I used to have a sticker right on the back. It was a, a Douglas Adams from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which Adams was no friend of the church, but he uh, had a kind of made-up um, encyclopedia of everything inside creation. And the why, reason why it sold so well was it had helpfully printed on the cover, don't panic, don't panic. Now, again, Adam's no friend of the church, but it's intriguing how Jesus is actually giving similar advice. And honestly, friends, there are some Americans that don't want to listen to Jesus because we like to panic. It gives us an emotional rush. Right, I worked in a mental hospital for two years. Some of you are saying, well, I've never heard anybody say, I am the Christ. I have, actually. I've known a, a, several dozen people that have said that. The thing, though, that I think surprised me so much working in the, the specific unit that I worked in was how many people were there, not because they were crazy, because they weren't, not so much because they had brain disease, because honestly, some of them didn't, it was really two reasons. One is they either liked drugs and alcohol enough that it was ruining their life. That was the vast majority. Or secondly is 
they loved the adrenaline surge that came with emotion. They loved it. And so they would chase highs or chase lows, chase sadnesses, chase joys, chase anything, panic, if it would stimulate their emotion and give them adrenaline. Friends, I would love to say that that doesn't fit. But if we're going to be honest, that's some of us, isn't it? We just like to feel something. Jesus doesn't stop with that. It's difficult. Don't be led astray just because things look bad. Don't panic. The Lord is still on his throne. Verses 9 through 14, he applies it and applies it in a way that I think is perhaps a little bit less than encouraging. Don't give up just because it hurts. Verse 9, then, next, after this, right, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to put you to death. You're going to be hated by all nations for my sake, and many will fall away. They're going to betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't give up just because it hurts. Now, I think this is interesting because here Jesus is giving really a warning against spiritual dangers that are exposed through physical suffering, right? They're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Or a Christian, what happens when you die? You die a martyr of whom the world is not worthy. You're victorious. Anytime a, a martyr dies, they die in victory. Interestingly, what's Jesus warning against, though, is those that are led astray, those that give up, those that don't make it to the end, because spiritually, they're not ready for the physical difficulty. Look at verse 10 and some of the the spiritual struggles they're having. They're going to fall away. Why? They're going to betray one another. They're going to hate one another. They're going to listen to false prophets even leading many astray. As lawlessness increases in the land, that's not uncommon, the love of Christ will grow cold. Jesus makes this point repeatedly throughout his ministry. You think about it with the four types of soil, right? The good seed is thrown out. It's the parable of the sower. The good seed is output on the soil, and you've got one type of soil that it is choked out by the cares of the world. The second that things get hard, it withers in the sun. It's interesting, of the four types of soil, two of them are described in this passage. Those that are unable to make it in the end, not because they're not um, starting out well, but because it gets too hard, it hurts. And they give up. Now, interestingly, both of these Points and passages thus far are generic future passages. I suspect that they're ultimately even fulfilled the moment that Jesus says them. I mean, you think about it. He's going to die in just a couple of days. Persecution starts right then and there. I mean, they're having to hide in the upper room for the vast majority of that time because they're afraid they're going to get killed too. He's 
Raised, I mean, don't forget, they're still trying to actively kill Lazarus as well. Right? Raised from the dead by Jesus, they're actively trying to figure out how to put him to death as well. Jesus dies, is raised, spends some time on earth, he ascends, and then all bets are off, and they go after the church like crazy, trying to kill him everywhere they can. All of this has been fulfilled as being fulfilled and will be fulfilled as it's talking about this era between the ascension and the second coming. Verse 15 is where it gets a bit more specific. He goes from kind of general between the ascension and the second coming to a very specific period of time. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel, let the reader understand. And that's not something that we tend to get excited about, the abomination of desolation. It's one of those kind of catchphrases that sounds funny to us. It sounds like something that should be said in like that kind of voice, kind of proclamation of some kind. But largely because we don't think about the kind of emotional trauma that it was for the Jews. Daniel prophesied the abomination of desolation, which was fulfilled again roughly 180 years or so prior to this Uh, uh, when Jesus is giving this speech. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes, terrible excuse of a human, uh, invaded Jerusalem, captured the temple, and as part of kind of thumbing his nose to the uh, Jews and kind of sticking his finger in the eye, he brought in a, a herd of pigs and sacrificed a bunch of pigs on the altar to the Most High inside the temple. That is as much of a tell-off as can possibly be said, right? All of the rude words that could be applied to someone he's doing to the Jews. Taking an animal that is uh, an emblem of uncleanness and then sacrificing it on the very altar to God and then taking it into the holy place as a sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. That's why they refer to it as the abomination of desolation. It was so catastrophically traumatic emotionally, spiritually, even physically from the suffering that followed. It defined the nation of the Jews. And so interestingly here, Jesus is changing gears not to the past abomination of desolation, but to the future one that's coming. And I think we can say most of us, um, it's future... For the listener, the original listening audience, I think this passage is largely fulfilled in 70 AD. Now, you remember Jesus is saying this again roughly 30 AD, and he's at the tail end of the Pax Romana. It's been peaceful largely to this point, but if you know your Roman history, it's a big deal as to when Jesus lives, when Jesus dies, and when he's raised. The next emperors that are going to come in line, see if you recognize some of these names. Caligula is the next one. Uh, Caligula was a pervert, uh, extraordinaire. You can't really read anything on him because it's too dirty to even be useful for young people. He was the one who was killed by his bodyguards for appointing his horse to the Senate. Uh, He was not a good man, wicked beyond all wickedness. He's followed by Claudius, not a great guy, but shining example compared to the rest of this list, who is then followed by Nero, 
Nero, one of the poorest excuses for humans ever, would light his garden parties by taking Christians, dipping them in tar, striking them to a stick, and then lighting them on fire. And they burned alive at his dinner parties to light the back garden. You could travel into Rome on certain holidays, and the, the roads into Rome were lit up by people, Christians, burning alive on the side of the street. Nero is a mess, dies badly, his governance was poor, and in the next 12 months after him, or you have a one-year period, you have four separate emperors that follow after him, one, two, three, four, because they're so incompetent and they have a bad habit of killing each other, so they don't live very long. With the one that follows is a guy named Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian uh, is the one who finally gets so irritated with the Jews that he has a young, hotshot general named Titus, who will be the next emperor. And he sends Titus to Jerusalem to destroy the Jews. Titus is not a fool. And so when he comes into Jerusalem, he knows what he's doing. He has no intention of simply kind of defeating an enemy. Titus goes full Sherman on them and decides to defeat not just an army, but a spirit and a soul. And so he helps burn part of the city to the ground. He destroys the temple. And worst thing of it all was as he destroyed it, he waved all the, you know, the Roman banners in it. He desecrated it along the way. But he didn't send his army out. This is actually well documented that he lit the temple on fire, knocked it down, and proceeded, but then waited so that all of the Jews, hearing that the temple was being destroyed, would return to Jerusalem to help. And he killed them as they entered the city. He exterminated an entire people group. He's a clever man. He just sat there with his armies waiting and let all of his enemies come to him and he killed them all. Titus is a horrible man. And what he did to the Jews was so spectacularly devastating. I mean, largely, if you think about it, that this is really the last time the Jews function as a nation state until the 1940s. He destroyed them. In fact, he actually did it so much, Rome changed the name of the region to drop Judea and changed it to Palestine. That's how bad he destroyed Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, they know Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed pigs on the altar to the Most High. They know whatever's coming is bad. In fact, actually, it's much worse even than what Antiochus Epiphanes did. And what's Jesus' counsel to them? I love this. This is actually marvelous. Then let those who are in Judea flee. Right? When you know it's happening, it's time for you to run. It's time for you to go. And interestingly, we actually have this documented. We know the exact city that the Christians fled to. Right? They all, in mass numbers, left Jerusalem because Jesus had told them, when you see this happen, it's time to go. And so they did. They fled. And Jesus gives them an idea of how bad it's going to be. When you hear this happening, do not go downstairs to pick up the kids' toys from the front yard. Don't go back out to the field to get the cloak that you left there. I really hope you're not pregnant because if you've got to travel while you're pregnant, it stinks to be you, but you better go. And it's interesting, Jesus, again, is, is concerned with the command. What are you supposed to do with this information? Verses 15 through 20, obey and pray. 
It's pretty easy. We can remember that. It's catchy. Sticks in our ears. What are you supposed to do? Obey and pray. When it comes time for us to think about the end of the world or whatever it is, don't panic. That's the wrong thing to do. Instead, we're called to be obedient and to pray. A peace and a patience, a hope and a joy. Obey and pray. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning. Yet, for the first time, really, since we see in Genesis, God effectively disavows the entirety of the people of Israel and lets them be exterminated from the face of the earth. And if you think about from 70 AD until today, one of the great dominant themes of history has been anti-Semitism, right? Hatred of the Jews, an attempt to exterminate them. I mean, it's kind of had a major world war about it, right? Big deal. The temple's gone. There's no house of God. A trouble like the world had not seen. In fact, even interestingly, Jesus goes on to acknowledge in verse 22 that he'll show mercy because if he hadn't, even the early church would have been in danger. That not only would the Jews have died, but perhaps even the Christians would have died and the church might not have made it. This is, I think, the most significant section as it deals very quickly here with, I think, the most important application for us. And it's this. Do not be distracted by a small and manageable Jesus. You see, that the first point is don't let the, the bad things distract you from being and let you be led astray. Well, the only reason that works is when you think the bad things are bigger than Jesus. When the earthquakes are bigger than Jesus, when the famine or food shortage is bigger than Jesus, when the persecution is bigger than Jesus, that, that's when you panic. That's when you're led astray. Or the second point where when it begins to hurt so badly that you begin to think your pain is bigger than Jesus. Or your misery is bigger than Jesus or greater than Jesus or your enemies are so great or grand that the Lord Jesus couldn't defeat them. Interestingly, in verses 21 through 28, you get to see the Lord kind of challenging them to be reminded that Christ is the king of all. Nothing is too great for him. Yeah, Rome is the greatest superpower the world had ever seen at that point. Titus, one of the great military generals in human history. A man who was willing to do whatever it took to win, and he did. And Jesus is like, he's small and puny in comparison to me. I'll save my people and I will preserve them. In fact, actually, verses 23 and 24, I love this one. People are going to say to you, oh, look, by the way, there's Jesus, there's the Messiah. Or, oh, look, he's coming back. Oh, look, he's coming back. And Jesus gives them this tremendous response in verse 27. Do you really think I'm so small that when I return, you won't know it? That's his answer. Do you really think I'm that small? That when I come back, somebody's going to be able to mistake my second coming for somebody hanging out upstairs in a house. 
or somebody hanging out out in a field or somebody over there. No, when the second coming happens, when Jesus returns in his glory, it is going to be so bright, so overwhelming, and so profound, the entire planet will not be able to ignore the fact that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Lord of glory, and when he returns, he will return clothed in glory. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. No joke it will be. You can't mistake that. And wherever the corpse is, wherever you see the dead bodies, well, yeah, that's where the vultures, that's where the carrion crows, that's where the media is going to gather. Friends, I would go back to where we started And to say so much of our current cultural moment is making money off of you by making money off of fear. Now again, the obvious one is fear of a virus, but that's not actually the most significant. Again, I I think so much it's easy to manufacture fear in dealing with uh, the government being incompetent or a loss of life and liberty, a loss of freedoms and joys, a loss of my wealth, a loss of the good life that I want to pass on to my children. So much fear. And it's intriguing that the remedy that Jesus gives is to say, you don't have to be afraid. Because the Lord makes no mistakes. And he knows exactly what he's doing. I would encourage you, In those moments where you begin to feel that anxiety, to feel that angst, to feel that discontent, don't panic. Jesus is bigger than that, and he makes no mistakes. Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you that even in tremendous difficulty, it is still true. Yes and amen, it is true. And we confess our sin. Sometimes, Lord, we don't like to admit it, but we like to keep that fear close. It makes us feel something. We like to nurture it. I mean, we say we don't, but we really do. We confess our sin, for we know, Lord, that when we fear like that, it is not motivated by love from you or love for you. Forgive us for our sinful fear, and O Lord, give us an understanding and a love for Jesus, that we might have peace in him for Christ's sake. Amen.